morning. Let's see if God will let us continue our adventure. The adventure has the idea of going into the unknown, exploring for something you've never seen before. And for me, adventure carries with it the idea of having some fun. And I have been having fun. I tell you, one of the things that's making this fun is some of you guys have been walking up and talking to me, and what I hear, I like it. It's, it makes it fun. Uh, you guys are saying, hey, I'm reading the book of Isaiah. Well, if you are like me, the first time I read something, I don't get it all. I have to read it again, and then once I figure out what's going on, I go back up, and then you kind of get this, oh, now I know what that means. Well, thinking about that, I decided that I'm going to do something today that I have never, ever done before. I'm going to try and cover five chapters in one lesson, okay? Now, I'll give you a little clue. Uh, when Joplin called me, uh, he said, Gary, uh, I want you to teach the whole book of Isaiah. The first thing that goes to my mind, well, that's 66 books. He says, well, take a couple years. And I got off the phone. I didn't tell him this, but I started laughing. I go... It took me two years to get through three chapters of Romans, and I'm thinking, Methuselah, maybe, okay? Because, but I'm gonna, we're going to try. Today we're going we're to we're go through it again, but what we're going to do today is we're going to go uh, and give an overview, and as we go through these first five chapters, what we're looking for is we're looking for the key verses. I'm going to try to do three things. I'm going to try to summarize it, give you the key verse, and then... One of the things we've been trying to look at in an introduction is to explain to you what's going on here is that God is explaining himself at a level I've never seen anywhere in, uh, in Scripture. Uh, this is about him. This is about God's reputation. Let me uh, quote to you a guy named Young. He says, Mankind was scattered with the results that individual nations and peoples arose. From among them in the time of Moses, God chose one people to be a nation for his name. It was to be a nation among nations, but one in which the righteousness of the righteous God would be justly exhibited in the judicial proceedings of the people and in their daily life. However, Israel, in actual fact, showed themselves to be little different from the other nations, and that's the problem. God sent them in the world to be a light, to be different, to be holy, to represent him. Did they do that? In the 800-and-something years since they've come out of uh, Egypt, they did not, okay? Instead of infecting the world, the world, they absorbed the world and became just like him. Their worship system designed to honor the one true God became a system that was fake, and then off to the side, they were worshiping all the gods, in reality, the demons that all the other nations worship. God's reputation is at stake here, Okay? So that's one of the things we're trying to uh, look at. Now, last week, we did get to the guy, Isaiah. And this, we talked about him, what he went through, how he was killed by Manasseh for, and that it was justified by what he spoke about in Isaiah chapter 6. But let me read to you something here. I think this is kind of funny, that this guy describing Isaiah says, his writing style has no rival in his versatility of expression, brilliance of imagery, and richness of vocabulary. The early church father to Rome likened him to Demosthenes. I don't know who it is, but he's a legendary Greek orator. His writing features a range of 2,186 words compared to 1,535 in Ezekiel, 653 in Jeremiah, 
and 2,170 in the Psalms. So the guy had a very rich vocabulary, but I think it's kind of funny that he is this great orator, has a fantastic vocabulary, and the first thing that you read that he writes is, my sons are dumber than donkeys, okay? So I think God has a little bit of sense of humor here. But what's really important here is that God is taking this personal. God is defending himself. So before we dig in and see all that's going on, let's fly over and look down and get the overview of what's going on. The first five chapters is introduction. If you understand the first five books of this Isaiah, you're going to have a really good feel and a good understanding of what's going on in the book. Remember, divide Isaiah into two parts. First 39, just like the Bible, mostly the theme is judgment. The second 27 section is 27 chapters is about salvation. So in this first section, the first five of the first 39 is introduction, okay, to the judgment of what's going on. So take that and let's start chewing it up. Let's get an overview. Okay, now, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1. This read, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Stop right there for a second. Now, how many here did your homework? You read the book of Deuteronomy. If you read the book of Deuteronomy... You have seen this expression three times before. He is doing something here. He's bringing in an audience, and we've talked about that a little bit, but he's also referring back to the book of Deuteronomy. And let me read you two of the three times. The point we're making here is that God was not taken by surprise, okay? And all of this that's happening is the the nations in the world are looking at Israel, and they're looking at the God of Israel, and they're asking questions. Did God fail? Okay, where is God in all of this? Okay, listen, God, you made some promises, so what's going on here? But before Israel did that, God predicted it would happen. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4.26. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but you will utterly be destroyed. God was not taken by surprise. Deuteronomy 32. Listen to, is a song. It was actually their national anthem. And in, read that, and it explains. This is funny. Moses made them memorize this long song, and it told them their future. And in it, it says, you're going to fail, very explicitly. So they were around singing this national anthem of their failure. They knew God was telling them what they were going to do before they went in. Let me quote to you just two verses here. He told them before they entered the land, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise up and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, so that they will say in that day, listen to this, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? That was quite a statement to make, considering all that God had done for them, bringing them out from Pharaoh 
and crossing the Red Sea, and look what they accused God of. But God tells Moses, you let them know, I know. I know what you're going to do when you go into the land. You are going to fail. So this was no surprise, okay? This was all part of the plan. So that God's still going to take the time, and he's going to defend. So let's read for a little bit, and let's see what God's defense here. And in each one of these sections, I want you to see the key verse and what God's defense in this section. Notice it says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You can take the first chapter, the first uh, the 31 verses, divided into two parts. He's talking to two groups of people. He's talking to Judah, which is the only remaining tribe left. And then he's talking to Jerusalem, which is the capital city. Now, as you go through the book of Isaiah, something is going to happen. You're going to notice that Judah fades away. In fact, here, there's only a, uh, t- verses 2 through 7 speaks to Judah. And then the remaining verses, the majority of the verses in chapter 1, is talking about Jerusalem. Listen, guys, you should get excited when you talk about Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's your home. It's where you're going. It's the capital city of your kingdom. It's where your king lives, okay? Jerusalem, there's going to be a lot in here about Jerusalem. If you knew what your home was like and where you're going, you'd get excited. This book is going to let you know what Jerusalem is. Now, right now, this Jerusalem is not what you want, but this Jerusalem is going to be changed, and it's going to be awesome, okay? Now, watch. Let's see what happens, okay? Now, in verses 2 through 7, it says he's talking to Judah, and he says, uh, look at verse 4. It says, alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Okay, stop there. He calls Judah. He calls them sons. He calls them my people. He calls them sinful nation. And he calls them offspring of evildoers. Okay, so that's how he's describing Judah. When you go through the remainder and it's talking about Jerusalem, Look at the way he describes them. He describes them, and this is uh, six times in Isaiah. It says, daughter of Zion, but then he will call them Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he will say that they are the faithful city that has become a harlot, and then he will call them Zion. Zion refers to the city, which they, I mean the hill in Jerusalem. So Judah, look at verse 2, here's the problem. Judah, now there have been moments of glory under David. David is the one that established it, made it the capital city. And there was times during uh, David and Solomon, it was a great, and it had moments of glory. It was a great city at times, but it has changed. It is not what it was meant to be. But I want you to notice, here's the key. Notice that God is saying that they have revolted. Okay, they have abandoned, they have despised, they have turned away. Do you see it? They, 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 they. What's God's point? His point is, this is not me leaving Judah. It's about them leaving me, okay? So the two points he's using his defense so far is, this is not a surprise. This is all from the beginning. I knew what they're going to do. And it's not me leaving them. It's them leaving me. Okay, verse five, uh, it says, where will you be stricken again? 
As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. He goes on through verse 6, and he describes how it looks like they've just been beat to a pulp. And what he's describing here is his discipline of this people, of what's left of this people. And the point is, and if you were here last week and you listened to Joplin's sermon, what is the mark of a good father? He disciplines his kids, okay? You may not like it, but a loving father, a good father, disciplines his, kid with the, his children with the purpose of bringing them to what? to the point of obedience and to doing what's right. And the point that God is making here is, I have discipline, I have discipline, I have done everything a father can do. And listen, this is not about me hating them, it's about me loving them. And I've done what I could do to bring them back. They have refused. He asked, where will you be stricken again? I've done everything I can do, okay? Now, verse 9. Look, it says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we'd be like Gomorrah. His point there is when Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out, what happened? Is there anybody, you know anybody from Sodom and Gomorrah these days? They're all gone. God didn't just take a few of them or a lot of them. He took all of them, completely wiped them out. He says that I could have treated Israel the same way, but I didn't. I left a few survivors. It's interesting that he uses the word Lord of hosts because what's the accusation here? The accusation against God here is that, hey, if you're the Lord of hosts and you're the Lord of armies and you're this all great God, then how come these armies are coming in and destroying your people? He's going to point out later on in chapter 5, well, I'm in control of those armies and I put a limit on what they can do. Okay? Now, it's very, very important. This is prophecy. It starts a major theme in the defense of God's character and God's plan. This book is prophetic, and this is just the first one. It goes on and on and on. It's prophetic time and time again, and this is just the first one. This one is important. The reason it is important is one of the questions that they're going to ask God is, what about your promises? Is Shiloh coming? Is he going to come through and then bless all the world through Abraham's seed? What about all those promises he made to David? What about the... On, there's a lot of promises, okay? He cannot fulfill those promises unless there's some Jews left. There will never be a time when Israel does not exist. You can't say that about any other nation. Go find me an Amalekite or a Philistine or all these nations that they completely obliterated. Okay, And then you look at the history of Israel. Since its beginning, it's a miracle that nation, as much as it's hated and despised, even to this day, it's a miracle they still exist. Listen, the Lord of hosts protects Israel. Okay, First prophecy. Okay, The point is here, the major point in this section, though, is that God is trying to bring them back. Second, in verses... 8 through 23, it starts with the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. That is now switching from Judah, and now he switches who he's talking to. He's now talking to Jerusalem. Now, before we get started here, when he talks to Jerusalem, you can divide this next section, the rest of chapter 1, divided into two sections. Paul helps us divide it. Listen to this. In Romans 1, 9, 
19, you, know, you probably know this verse, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against two things, all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness refers to how men treat God. Unrighteousness refers to how men treat men. Okay? And you can plug in the word justice there. Okay? So God's wrath is revealed against two things, ungodliness and injustice. Okay? Now, that's exactly how you can divide the rest of this chapter. When talking about Jerusalem, he is going to say two things about them. Okay? He's going to say, they treat me wrong, and they treat the orphans and the widows and everybody else wrong. Okay? And... If you get a hold of what he's doing here, he's going to say it twice, okay? See if you can see this pattern here. First of all, in verses 11 through 15, watch what he does. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. Okay, skip all the way down to verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. You know what this is right here, this section? This is a list of everything that they were supposed to do in their temple and ceremonies. This is a list of everything they were supposed to do. This was their religious society. Everything about Israel was designed for worship. And this is a list of all the things they would do to help them worship God. It was in their design as a nation, okay? God hates the way they do it. Hosea is going through the same thing. He's working with the 10 tribes during the same time uh, that uh, Isaiah is working with Judah in the south. And this is what he says. He says, they worship me, but their heart is not in it. Okay? This isn't worship. This is fake worship. Okay? The last one to me is very dramatic. He says, even though you pray and pray and pray and pray and pray, I'm not listening. Your hands are covered with blood. Okay? So... God's sick of it, okay? Verse 17, he goes from how he's treating, the, the Judah, or Jerusalem is treating uh, God at the temple and in their ceremonies, and now he switches to how they're treating men. He says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil in your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. What is justice? Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, Plead for the widow, okay? They're not doing it. The most helpless in society, the ones who need help the most, they are treating them cruelly, okay? Now, there's another thing here. Um, notice that he gives an invitation. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, skin, uh, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow, they are Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now, if you've read Deuteronomy, you'll recognize the next two verses. It says, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. He has not just spoken it. He has spoken it over and over again to Israel. This is a covenant that he made with them. He says, if you obey, if you go back and read, I think it's Deuteronomy 28, 29, somewhere in there, look. And he has made a covenant with them. He made them a promise. He says, if you will obey the law that I gave you, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. 
It's a covenant. He is repeating the covenant. He is saying, even though you guys are doing wicked right now, the offer is still on the table. The invitation is still out there, okay? It's not over yet. I will fulfill my part of the promise that I made you if you will repent and change your ways. God is giving them a chance still. He's being very patient with them. Notice then, at the rest of the chapter, he says the same thing that he's just said, except this time he reverses it, okay? This time, when he re reverses it and repeats it, he says it in a negative way. The first time he said, this is what I want, this time he says, you're not doing it. Look how he says it. He says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Now listen, Isaiah chapter 57, it gets very graphic. It's going to have to be really careful how we treat it. But this is how personal and how deeply God feels about what they're doing. He feels like a cheated on husband, okay? And he repeats this over and over again. He is hurt. He is a jealous God. He hates what they're doing, okay? They're cheating on him. How are they cheating on him? Instead of worshiping me, they're worshiping other gods, okay? They have become a harlot. He said, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Okay? So he repeats what he just finished. He says they're not doing it. They're cruel in how they do it. Then he promises judgment. <clears throat> now, verse 25 is key. Remember I said uh, last week that God does something here that he doesn't do anywhere else. Like in Job, he did not explain why he was doing it or what his purpose was. Here, he does. You think, nations and world, you're looking at God and you're thinking he has failed in Israel? No, 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 no. Let me show you what I'm doing. Look at verse 25. I will also turn my hand against you. Here it is. I will smelt away your drosses with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as as the first, and your counselors at the beginning, and then you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Do you see it? Prophetic again, he says, oh no, I'm not going to leave him like this. This isn't the end game. There is a purpose for what I'm doing. I am going to purge them. They have... Things in them that need to be cleaned up. And I'm going to use this judgment to clean some things up. Give you one example. After Babylon, they never again worshipped idols. Okay? Some of that purge came out. Now, they never became fully what they would after Babylon. But one step at a time, they started to become a purified and holy nation. There is a purpose to what he's doing. Okay? Now... Someday, they're going to become a nation of righteousness. He then repeats in a negative way their fake worship. He says, this is what they're doing in a set. And when it says, you will be ashamed, in verse 29, it says, you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. You will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. Do you know what he's talking about there? That's where they set up their false idols, okay? So he's saying, uh, you're fake worshiping when you go there, but then... You're getting your heart into it, and you're putting, and they were being very elaborate. They were spending a lot of money, a lot of time. They were putting all their time and energy into not true worship, but into the worship of 
idols, okay? So, last one, last verse, it says, the strong man will become tender, his work also a spark, thus they will both burn together and there will be none to quench them. That is also prophetic, except this time he's prophesying what? That's hell. You're going to hell. You fake worshipers, you're worshiping idols, you're treating each other bad, let me give you another prophecy. That's what hell is going to look like. You and your idols are going to burn up. Okay? So, God is vindicated in three different ways. Okay? First, listen. The invitation is still out there. He's still, wake, well, he's still willing to make his offer that he made in Deuteronomy. The second thing is, I will, I will, I will. Three I wills, he says, I will smelt away. I will remove your alloy. I will restore. There is a purpose for what he's doing. The third thing is, again, is the prophecy. He will accomplish what he, he will bring Jerusalem to the point where she is what she's supposed to be. Now, that thought leads you to chapter two. You see where he says that you will one day be called a city of righteousness? Carry that thought to chapter two. And here we go in chapter two. Now, when you get into chapter 2, you can divide this chapter into three parts, okay? Prophecy, present, prophecy, okay? Prophecy about Jerusalem, what it's going to be one day, back to what Jerusalem looks at now, and then prophecy in a very negative way, and this gets really, really awesome, okay? The king is going to show up and he's going to say, look what happens when Jesus Christ comes back. Look, future Israel, verses 1 through 4. It says, start with verse 2. It says, now come about in the last days, the fountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that may we walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Okay. Now, you see that phrase. It says, verse 2, in the last days. In the last days... I started doing this through the whole book, and I got into, I stopped writing. I had, I had three pages full, and I'm only up to chapter 20, okay? That's how many times you see in the last days. In the introduction alone, there are seven times you will see that phrase. In that day, or something, a day is coming, you'll see it seven times. This is the first of seven times, and each one, it's a prophecy about the Lord's day that is coming. Look at what's going to happen. You think Israel's program has failed? God's not done yet. He's going to show us over and over and over again what is going to happen. In chapter 2, the telescope goes to the future. He twists it, he'll come back. But listen, it says that Jerusalem someday will be what I want her to be. Okay? There's going to become a day, and this is fantastic, when the world's going to be at peace. Okay? It's coming. It's not going to come from, listen, one of the points of all human history, go through the almost 6,000 years of history since the Garden of Eden, and one thing is very clear. Even with the best of men, we can't do it. Men do not have the answer. The answer to this world is the king of kings. Yeah. 
okay? And that is what's coming, okay? In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. That is literal. It will be the number one mountain in all the world. Everybody's going to stream to it. And by the way, Micah repeats this word for word, okay? Now, verses 5 through 9 is Judah's present corruption, okay? Now, the key to this, now, I, I think this is funny. Uh, I think God has what you call a wicked sense of humor. I come from the state of Maine, and if you're from New England, they have what they call a wicked sense of humor. I think this is funny. You guys might not, but I have that wicked sense of humor. Uh, what is God doing here? He's prophesying. He's going to prophesy. He's going to prophesy. And right in the middle, he says, uh, Jerusalem, you're full of soothsayers. Do you know what a soothsayer is? It's people who predict the future. Then they have all kinds of little neat little tricks that they try to pull, okay? But listen, they're not right. They don't get it. And it's kind of like God says, okay, you got your little future predictions? Prophesy this, okay? It's, they're not prophesying about a great Jerusalem coming one day, and they're surely not prophesying about what they're going to see after this, okay? Because after this, there is going to be an explosion of Jesus Christ, Okay, and the world is going to be shocked. Okay, these soothsayers aren't prophesying about any of this. God is the only one, He is the only one that can prophesy and get it right, and He's the only one that prophesies what needs to be prophesied, and that's about God Himself. Okay, so the present corruption it says they are filled, verses six through eight. If you want to know what their corruption is, look at four words filled. Filled, filled, filled. What are they filled with? They're filled with influences from the east. They're filled with money. They're filled with horses. And they're filled with idols. Do you see any correlation between that and today? Listen, if your security is in money and a well-armed military and good leadership, good government, they had it all. They were filled with it. You know what? These are all direct defiances of God's command. God told them before they ever did any of this, don't do it. They're doing exactly what God told them because he knew what would happen. He knew that it would lead to their pride. He knew it would lead to their destruction. They're doing what he told them not to do. Okay? Now, Isaiah, the last uh, 10 through 22, let's finish the chapter. It says, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. The issue here for the rest of the chapter is pride, okay? He is going to eliminate everything. Listen, world, everything that you put as more important than God, he's going to wipe it out, okay? When he comes, he's going to do something. He says something here three times. I want you to notice he says it. In verses 19, verse 10, verse 19, and 21. Let me just read one. Read the first one. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. He will repeat that three times. Do you know when that happens? Turn to Revelation chapter 6 and look at the sixth seal. Do you know what God is going to do when Jesus Christ comes back? He's going to turn all the lights out. Stars aren't going to shine. Sun's not going to shine. Moon, where do you go? I don't know. Everything is going to go black. And then all of a sudden, and everything is very dark because Israel is in big trouble. They're about to get wiped out. All the world is ganging up on Israel. And all of a sudden, God just turns all the lights out. 
And when he turns the light out and it's black, black, okay, then all of a sudden there is going to be, poof, an explosion of light. And you know what it's talking about? It says that men will be terrified of the majesty. Read Revelation. You know what it says they're going to be terrified of? Instead of saying majesty, you know what it says? It says from the presence. You know what the presence means? The word means face. The world is going to see nothing but the face of Jesus Christ. And there's going to be a spectacular explosion of light that comes with it. The Shekinah glory and Jesus Christ in all his glory will show up. And then all of a sudden, all those things that you put as more important than God, not going to mean anything. And listen, you can either learn the fear of God now, or you can learn the terror of God then, and you're not going to be able to hide from him. Okay? He's coming. Chapter 3. A day of reckoning is coming. Then here comes chapter 3. He takes the thought in verse 22 and he carries over with it. And it says, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Then he goes on in chapter 3 and he says he's coming back. And this is a short prophecy because this is what he's about to do to Jerusalem. He's about to take away all their support. Everything, uh, their leadership, their army, their food, their water, everything, he's going to take it away. Now, when Joplin asked me to, uh, to teach this, uh, I went through and started reading it, and I was going, oh, yeah, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 53. This is awesome. This is going to be fun. But then I got to chapter 3, and I go, uh-oh, I don't want to go here. You know what I think I might do? I, I seriously debated this. I thought about, I might let Joplin teach this one. Because uh, I might just do that tag team wrestling thing. Tag, you take him, and when you get done, I'll take the next guy. Because there's some things in here I don't want to touch. Because you know what he does in chapter 3? He goes after the women, okay? Now, I'm a guy, and if I tell you some of the things he says about women in here, I'm going to be the first one out the door because I know how I'm going to get a reaction, okay? Okay, so first I thought, well, I'll let Joplin teach this. I said, no, that'd be kind of, that's not fair. That'd be mean to him. So I thought, well, you know what I could do? I could, uh, I'll just smooth over it. I will. I'll just, I'll say something nice, skip over it, and go to chapter 4. I go, no, I can't do that. I, I got I to gotta say, say what it really says, okay? Now, listen, uh, this is the only time in the Bible I know he does this. He goes after the women, okay? So what he's doing here, okay, he is looking at Jerusalem just before he finishes them off. And one of the points that he's making, there's several points that he's making, is he's taking away all their leadership, and he's leaving nothing but women and children. Their leadership is horrible. And then one of the things he does is he's looking at the, you know, the women are and the children are supposed to be the gentle, the kind, the nice, the sweetest, even them. That's how bad it is. He's showing that even at the very depth of Jerusalem, what should have been the sweetest and the best, even they are corrupt, okay? They're mean, they're nasty, and they're, the thing that he hates the most about the women is they're proud. They go around and look at me, and they're strutting their stuff, and he hates it, okay? Pride is the issue here. There is one good thing, ladies. He puts on a fashion show here, okay? He does. Uh, if you guys want to know what was important for what girls wore back then, 
Okay, he does put on a fashion show. Look at the end in verse 18. It says, in that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, uh, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, clothes, and money purses. And then he goes on, perfume, turbans, veils, belts, well-set hair. It's a fashion show. Girls, if you want, girls are still girls back then. They're just like you, okay? I don't think they had Victoria's Secret or anything like that, but they had some kind, they had something going on. It, it was important to them what they wore. And he says, one of the things he's going to do to these girls, he says, I'm going to take your, what's a really nice, I have no clue on fashion. I'm fashionably illiterate. Marilyn dresses me, so I don't even know what's fashionable. Okay? But the point here is they didn't have a, whatever the story is that you guys think is so great. Okay? They had, he turned it into rags. Okay? He punished the women for their pride. Okay? All the things they took pride in and their beauty and their looks, he wipes it out. Okay? So that's the point. Chapter 4, I love chapter 4. Okay? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. He goes back to again. He goes back, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Guys, he's trying to tell all the world and all creation, guys, this isn't it. Look what's coming. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride. Stop right there. What is he talking about? What is the fruit of the earth? You know what's going here? I, I just, there's just certain things I like. I like this one. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the God-man. The first one is the man that's coming. He will come from God, and he will also come from earth. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about, and there's only one person that that, that can be talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ, okay? The branch is going back. We're going to talk about that. That has to do with the Davidic covenant, okay? Listen, he will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Listen, then he says, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For all, over all, the glory will be a canopy. Okay, there we go again. Jerusalem will be called holy. And how is he going to do it? By the spirit of judgment. Again, he's explaining what he is doing. Okay. This is all part of God's plan. How is he going to do it? The God-man is coming. And then when the God-man comes and he makes Jerusalem what it's supposed to be, guess what else happens? The Shekinah glory comes back. Ezekiel talks about when it's left. The Shekinah glory was this brilliant, physical, light manifestation that surrounded Israel, protected her. It was their covering. It was their glory. It represented the presence of God. When they were taken away, it's kind of glory left. It's coming back, okay? Okay, chapter 5, I'm going to finish real quick. Parable of the vineyard, there is one important verse here I want you to look at. Verse 3, it says, judge between me and my vineyard. To me, that was the key to understanding what this book is. When I was trying to figure out what Isaiah was trying to do, that was it. This is about... Look at God and judge me. Judge between me and Israel. Look at me. 
look at me and decide what kind of God I am. When you look and see what he's doing and the defenses that he's made, God's awesome. He's not done with Israel, and what he's going to do is fantastic. <laughs>